Hello, and welcome to Where Am I To Go podcast. Today we happen to be in, is it Mesa or are we in Tempe? You're in Phoenix. We're in Phoenix, okay. We're in Phoenix, Arizona. We are at the Arizona Military Museum, and we are here with Joe. And he's a lawyer. He's, a, he's been around and uh, has been the director of this museum for over 40 years. He uh, was one of the ones that started it. Now, this is on the base, right? The National Guard right. base. So in order to get into this museum, you've got to go through a guard station. They check out your driver's license, and they allow you to come in. The hours are usually just Saturday and Sunday uh, that it's open from 1 to 4. Right now, you're closed because of coronavirus. But uh, check the availability. Make a phone call before you come and make sure that everything's open. Uh, and Joe has been really interesting to talk to. Joe is opinionated. He's got some very strong uh, opinions on things. He was in Vietnam. He was actually in combat. He's got a lot of uh, very strong feelings about uh, the way that the veterans were treated. I find no offense with anything he said. As far as listeners, uh just be prepared to, to hear some opinions that may differ from yours. My opinion on that is listen to what he has to say. Uh, take his opinions and, and uh, live with them or, or agree or disagree. He's not asking anybody to agree with him. He just has his opinions and the way that he saw things. And I can tell you that the way that he saw things versus the way it was presented in the media is a lot different. This may come through as with our podcast. He's got a strong personality, but I personally really like that. So, Joe, thank you so much for, for driving here today and opening up the museum for us so that we can see what you've got. Uh, it looks like this is going to be extremely interesting. And as far as I'm concerned, you're a super interesting guy here. So take us on our tour. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Uh, as you said, I... I have a, I'm opinion, I'm opinionated. I have a high opinion of my opinion, so I'll share it with you. Okay. Well, that and that's that's what we're going to get today. All right. Welcome to the Arizona Military Museum. We're located uh, at the Papago Park Military Reservation in Phoenix, Arizona. I can see why you get confused because just up the block, up the street there, maybe a couple blocks, is the convergence of Tempe. Uh, Scottsdale and Phoenix. So you're in, we're real close to the three different cities here. And when you look at the map, it looks not far from Mesa either. Yeah, so. it's, all, it's weird. But anyway... And this, you're also located, just, just for a side note, you're located really close to the Botanical Gardens. Right. You're located close to the zoo. Right. You're located close to uh, the Hall of Flame Museum. Right. And also the uh, police museum, right? And and so you're kind of right in the middle of a whole bunch of things. And if people are in this area, they need to be stopping in and, and seeing what you guys have here if they're here on a Saturday or Sunday. Right. What had happened is, uh, let me tell you the start how we how we got started because that'll help a little bit. Um, we the guard wanted to have a museum, and uh, I was pretty active in the guard and. 
couple of my colonels liked me, and they said, Joe, why don't, why don't you do it? So I, I, I put together a board, and we cleaned out. This was, this was where the prisoners of war during World War II um, would, would train with the trucks or the lorries. So they had a, a, a truck company in here. If you notice, when you came in, you saw on, on the east side of the north wing, there's a big door, big sliding door. If you look on the west side, it's all glass, but that's where another big door was. That's where they drove the lorries in. We cut out this front area here where our two front doors are. We knocked that through the concrete and put the entrance doors for the museum. So that's how people come in. Now this building is an interesting building because look at the wall. This is real adobe. Real adobe. You can see that it's adobe. You can see the straw in it. You this, can. This is the largest adobe structure in the state of Arizona, still in use. The reason why you can't tell it on the outside because it's stuccoed over. But see, we didn't stucco this on. What you see, it kind of glistens. We put some kind of a, I don't know, it was kind of like a, a paste or something. We sprayed something on it because the adobe kind of gets powdery after a while. Okay. So this is to keep it, its integrity together. So you come in the museum, you walk down the ramp, and the theme of the museum is the military history of Arizona, and Arizonans who served in the military. When I first got involved with the, with the uh, museum, uh, we've gotten done with uh, Vietnam, let's see, we came back from Vietnam in 75, yeah, we came back from Vietnam, well actually we came back in 73, the war ended in 75, I got elected president in, in, um, in 80, and so the last thing we had was Vietnam as a war. And the guys who wanted to found this museum were basically senior staff in the National Guard. They had been in the National Guard and they wanted to have a museum. They wanted to have a museum that uh, basically portrayed what they did, the militia of Arizona. Well, that's fine, but it had nothing to do with the only militia of Arizona that we did had was the Bushmasters in World War II. They were MacArthur's point element in the islands. Um, and then uh, and then the 1st Arizona Volunteer Infantry, which I'll get to in a second, they were basically uh, uh, Pima, Maricopa, and Mexicans who were conscripted by the United States Army to chase Apaches. They basically erad eradicated the Apache problem. But anyway, that's an aside. Let's get into the different displays. The first display is the Conquistador era, beginning in 1540. We have a replica, uh, conquistador. We have a mannequin. It's got a, a morion. The morions of that period pretty much looked alike. That's not a Spanish morion. I think it's a Dutch morion. Now, what's a morion? A hat? Hel helmet. The helmet. helmet. Yes. Helmet. Okay. Yeah. And it's got the ridge coming from the from the front onto the back. Right. It's got the, the like the ridge you know, on the top, and it's shaped to the front. It's like the Swiss guard look. Okay. 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 Because at that time, they, that's the helmets they all used. The Swiss, I guess the Germans looked that way, the French, the, the Spanish. Um, we had replica weapons made up. This is a, the first firearm it would have been. It looks like a, just a little cannon, because what it is, you put the powder in, you put the ball in there, and you light the, the little rope there, and then you squeeze the trigger at the bottom, oh. and, and that goes down to the pan where the powder is, and it's like holding a portable cannon. That's so that's like a flintlock with a fuse. That's it. But wow, it, I, now I have never seen one of these. Yeah, that, that's what the Spanish did. It's basically a variation of a, of a cannon on a ship. You, you just use a lever to put the fuse down to touch it. That's all. See that? See that? That had to. So you had to light the fuse every time, yeah, or yeah, did they yeah. keep the fuse lit? Because well, when you were putting powder in the flash pan, it seems like it'd be awful easy to get that thing to flare. That's a good question. I don't know. I don't know. But you've got to be careful because when you 
when it blows up, maybe it puts a fuse, maybe it puts a fuse out. Because you see, it's just basically an explosion. It's hitting the pan. The flash pan. The flash pan. And boom, there it goes, shoot, and then blows up inside the barrel and puts the projector forward. Yeah. But, uh, I, you know, I don't know. I don't know how they did it. But the bottom line is that's the way it was. And, the and then you've got a set of brass shoes. Yep, because um, right in the brush in the... In uh, Arizona and all over, you know, the height. Oh, every every plant down here has a thorn on it, it so, thorn so on it yeah. seems. So that's to put over their shoes. Um, oh, so that was a shoe covering yeah, while they shoe were riding. Yeah, right, absolutely. Okay. Um, and then in the back, you see the flags of the Spanish. Okay. Uh, you see, that's another Morion that's that was made right there. That, and that, that one's got the feathers on it. Yeah. The guy made that by hand. His name was Kirby Weiss. He's passed away now. But I went to go see him in Bowser, Arizona. He was a blacksmith. Uh -huh. And he had an anvil. He pounded that helmet out. He pounded wow. one of the swords out. He pounded the spear out. He pounded he made the he made everything except a couple things up there are, are, are not replicas, they're real. So anyway, that's that's the Conquistador era. They were the first Europeans in Arizona. We start with the Europeans because if you really want to start with the first people in Arizona, you get into the indigenous Indian tribes and all right. that. Right. And they had their military. You know, right. Okay. And so we're talking the 15, 15, 1500s. 1500s, 1600s, and they started moving from, from they were Latin America, they came in Arizona. Uh, remember they were, uh, Coronado went to look for the seven cities of gold and looking, uh, I think he reached the Grand Canyon. Uh, and then the Spanish developed and they started making presidios, which is basically a fort. They put a mission by each one. Um, I'm from Tucson. There's a beautiful Tucson um, uh, 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 church, uh, South Tucson. But then you go a little bit farther south, and you'll find uh, Tubac and Tubacacri. Tubac was the was the presidio. Tubacacri was the mission. And I think there was one more that was closer to the Mexican border, which I think is just ruins now. It doesn't exist. But that's that's what Tubac looks like. That that mission over there. Okay. And it's improved. And that's still standing. Yes. Yes. Wow, I'm going to have to go see that at and some Santa point. And Santa Vera, just south of Tucson, is still standing. It's a beautiful mission. It's been restored and everything. Beautiful. Spanish, Spanish, you know, converted all the Indians they could as they came forth. This is what's called the Spanish Tropa Ligera. That would have been that time. Tropa means troop. Ligera means light. I call it the Zorro period. Okay, okay. <laughs> and we're, we're looking at a, at a soldier with more of a cowboy-type hat. Yeah, looks like, and, a Zorro, like you see in the Zorro movies. Yeah, exactly. The tall leggings and, and spurs and yeah. all of that on him. Okay. He had a, he had a, 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 a I guess that would have been a flintlock. Right. And uh, um, they also were cavalry. The Lancers, you see the Lancer there? Yes. A picture of a Lancer. Which, a which looks like a big spear. That's exactly right. And then you see what's... That long, that long vestment that that guy's wearing in that picture is uh, was made out of deer skin or cow skin, and it was uh, it protected you, okay, like a form of armor. So that was the Spanish era. That would have been the 1850s, excuse me, uh, 1700s um, up to 1800. The Spain, the Spanish intermingled with the with the Indians. Created basically the Mexican race. Nobody ever explains it that way, but that's pretty much the way it was. And to make a long story short, Mexico got its independence from Spain. I think it was in 1820. The Greek to it's called the cry or the shout. This is what a Mexican soldier would have looked like at that time. They now started occupying. They, they kicked the Spanish back to Spain. 
and they and and the Mexicans are now occupying Tucson. This is what a Mexican soldier would have looked like occupying the Presidio of Tucson. Okay, that's, and that's, now and now he's just wearing basically a white trouser right? with a blue vest, right? red stripes on it. Again, kind of a cowboy looking hat right? and carrying a sword. And a spear. And a spear and he's gold and, and brass buttons coming down the front. Right. And that those are pictures of old Tucson, what the Tucson Presidio would have looked like. Okay. That's an artist's rendition. That's a picture of it. I didn't know it was two stories. And then that's where a picture, uh, a drawing of where the chapel would have been. Okay. So this is what a Mexican soldier would have looked like. This is what a U.S. soldier would have looked like at the same time. Because what had happened is the Mexicans had come up and Texas was having a problem. Right. And uh, Santa Ana was a problem. And um, Sam Houston was it? No, who was the... I'm trying to think about who the president was at the time. Anyway, make a long story short, this is where the manifest destiny. manifest destiny for us to go and take, get rid of these people from all our places there in the south. So we sent troops all the way into Mexico City. Mexico, all the way to Mexico City. All the way to Mexico City. This is what they would have looked like. And uh, we uh, um, defeated Santa Ana. And that's where we got the uh, Gaston Purchase. Okay. As a result of that. And now yeah. this must have been after the Alamo. Yes. Okay. Yeah. California, Arizona, New Mexico, or Nevada. I don't know if part of Utah was involved. I think part of Wyoming was part of, the, right. part of the Spanish territory. Right. We had five different territories. Yeah, that's right. I, that's that's the outlier. I was far north. Where, it's way north. Way north. Well, you know the Spanish got all the way to Alaska. Did they really? They did. They went all the way up at one time. You know, you know the the the, the coast highway in California. Right, right. You go up there, Oregon, Washington, and they got into Alaska. Wow, I did not know their reach was that far. Yeah. But I know that Wyoming at one point in time, because I'm from there, was part of the Spanish territory. Right, right. So this would look like there's there's the Mormon battalion. The Mormons were very active. They they uh, they they volunteered because they're being persecuted back east, and so they volunteered. They got money. Uh, to, to be soldiers and to buy their uniforms. They didn't really buy that much of a uniform. They used it for their families, but they were part of the Mormon battalion and they came out uh, the western part and they actually went in and occupied Tucson and met some of the Mexican soldiers. There were about 25 of them that were in Tucson. They left the Tucsonians, the, the, the soldiers in Tucson, moved out and let the Mormons go in and trade with the Indians and all that and, and you know, exchanged clothing and I guess I don't know if they had money or gold or whatever and re replaced themselves, and then they went on their way um, to uh, California, where they ultimately ended up. Now, this uniform that you were talking about that was a U.S. soldier uniform, it again has white trousers, and he's got a light blue, I, I, not quite baby blue, but it's a light blue uh, tunic. Uh, tunic, and uh, he's carrying a bayonet, again, a percussion rifle, it looks it's like. It's called and a Mississippi rifle. A Mississippi, okay. And then he's got a little beret-type hat on, more so than, like, the cowboy hat. Right. It's, uh, it's, uh, well, it's not a beret. Beret is, like, when I think of beret, I think, like, with the Special Forces. It's a saucer cap with a bill. Okay. Saucer Maybe cap. more like a, like a Navy-type cap. Well, it's, Navy, the Army wears caps like that, too. It's a, it's a, we call it a saucer cap with a bill to be distinguished from the other cap that's, that's flat. We have a nickname for it, but we can't use it on the radio. Okay. Runs with runs. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, so then that gets us, this gets us into the Arizona Territory. Um, 18, 
60s. Um, Gadsden Purchase, I'm trying, I forgot what the Gadsden Purchase was, but, but then we had uh, California had its own militia. And this is what their militia would have looked like. It looked like a regular U.S. Army type uniform, but not quite. And Baylor, uh, the Civil War was starting uh, in the 1860s, and so they sent some people out west, and Tucson was occupied by the Confederates. And, okay. and uh, in fact, they actually got over to near where I live, um, uh, and uh, Amy's Mill was a flour mill along the, uh, the river there. Um, to make a long story short, uh, the California column was, went to go meet them because they wanted to get involved in the Civil War. And, and this was Carlton's California column. When I say California column, I mean, he had a large organization. It must have been brigade or division side. He had artillery, he had infantry, he had cavalry. And he was moving due, due uh, east, and the Confederates uh, were at uh, Amy's Mill and around Picacho Peak. Are you familiar with Picacho Peak? I am not. Okay, when you drive to Tucson, on your right-hand side, you'll see a peak over there. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, I, I didn't know the name of it, but yeah, I've, I've traveled the road between okay, there a couple Pecacho times. Peak, and the Confederates had a little patrol, and, and the, and the, and the uh, Army, U.S. Army had a little patrol. They met with each other. The lieutenant was killed, um, but the Confederates now realized, uh-oh, there's a big group of people coming toward us. So they went back to Tucson informed them, and, they, and the Confederates abandoned Tucson and went back to Texas. Okay. Now, I just came from a place called Maricopa Wells. Or, excuse me, Maricopa. It used to be called Maricopa Wells. The first armory of the Arizona National Guard was on the Overland Mill Station, Maricopa Wells, 1864. Now, that's on the Indian Reservation. That doesn't exist anymore. This is what it would have looked like. It was also like an inn. It was a way station for travelers to stop. And they would usually basically use mules. Mules are a fantastic animal. You know, you right. Do a lot of stuff. You know a little bit about. I know a little bit about mules. Okay. You can't really overload them, otherwise they just tell you they're not going to go, right. they, and they're they kind have, of ornery. And they're ornery, but they can carry a lot. You can. It's hard to overload them. They can carry more than a horse. And they're more. They're they're sturdier. sturdier they're more durable. They're more sure-footed on a horse. Right. Like the, the horses going along the Grand Canyon Trail, they're stupid enough. They'll walk off and go off the cliff. The mules will say, uh uh-uh, I'm not stepping there. Yeah, they're smart. Get a mule person and a, and a horse person together, and you can have a battle over which one's better. But yeah. yeah okay, I got you. <laughs> but anyway, so Governor Noble Goodwin, we're having Apache problems in the 1850s and 60s, and uh, Governor Noble Goodwin, territorial governor, went back to meet a couple guys, a guy named Grant and a guy named Lincoln. You may have heard of these guys. I think I did. Okay. And he says, you know, we got an Indian problem, Apache problem out there. And they says, hey, dummy, we're, we're in the middle of a civil war. We can't give you any troops. But what we will do is we'll authorize five infantry companies. You man them. So what they did is they got a company of Mexicans, a company of, of Maricopa Indians, company of Pima Indians, and, and some good old cowboys from up north. And they came up with five companies. And... Uh, this is a one of the one of the uh, what is he? Do I have him listed there? Maricopa Wells. The blue. I'm trying to remember which one was blue. It's either Pima or Maricopa. But the bottom line is, this is what they look like, and he's carrying a Mississippi rifle. That's why I made the point about the Mississippi rifle over there. Okay. They get Mississippi rifle. All of them didn't get Mississippi rifles, and that's 
um, I don't know if that's ironwood. They carved that. That thing is heavy. That is a hell of a mace. You hit somebody on the head on that, it won't knock him out of a crack of skull. <laughs> okay, now he's talking about a club that's probably uh, 14 inches long, uh, has a handle on it, and then a big chunk of wood at the end. And like he said, it's ironwood, it's heavy, and uh, it, it would be used, I guess, as in hand-to-hand combat more situation. Right. And what, what, when he's talking about these uniforms, each one of these are on a mannequin that is life-size, uh, would be pretty much the way that the soldiers would have looked. And we've got lots of them throughout all of these displays. Uh, this display in particular, there's several different rifles, a shotgun it looks like, uh, bayonets, just all kinds of different military equipment. Uh, we've got swords and some of that kind of stuff in here. And it's just a very well-presented, very nice display as all of these are, you've done a fantastic job with the, with the displays in, these mu- in this museum. Thank you. This is, like I say, this is my baby. Yeah, and, and it's obvious because everything is very clean, it's very neat, orderly. And, I, I've and had people who've been to museums throughout the world. I've had general officers come here. They say, this is a great museum. One of them, uh, General Barry McCaffrey, you ever hear him? You see him on TV every once in a while? On MSN, you don't watch. I don't watch TV. Okay, well, uh, <laughs> I listen to podcasts. Okay, Joe McCaffrey, he said, "Joe, you ought to get this and get it, get the city fathers downtown, put it downtown." I said, "Sir, right now the guard lets us have this. We don't have to pay for rent or utilities, and we just run it. And that's the trade-off. We run it, and we keep it going. None of us gets paid a penny. I've been doing this for forty years. I've never got a dime out of it. In fact, I probably put I don't know how many." Thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of dollars into this out of my own pocket. You see all these signs here, all the narratives and all that stuff? Right. I did all of them. I bought all the frames. I bought all the parchment paper. I typed it all up. I did all the research. And it's there. And this is why I'm glad you're doing what you're doing because this is a little bit of a record of what we're doing. It's not all the stuff that's here, but what you're writing is there, you know. Yeah, and and it's definitely worth the see. If if somebody's even remotely interested in... uh, military history make sure you're here on a weekend and you guys are open it's you got to come see yeah we're, we're going to open up as soon as we can let's go across the way over here this is uh you've heard of the rough riders right teddy roosevelt Ted- said i'm going to run go meet up with those rough riders from arizona the first u.s volunteer cavalry they went uh to uh or not to uh, spain remember remember the main remember the spanish something cuba they went to cuba okay not spain they went to cuba spanish troops but in cuba and uh, uh, that's those were the Rough Riders from Arizona. Okay. There was a unit from Arizona that went there. This is what's called a potato digger. It's a machine gun, belt-fed. That lever there, when you fire it, it's gas-operated. The lever would go up and down. You shoot a little bit, you hunt, hunt it before you don't gas. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. You don't gas-operate um, uh, Yeah, okay. which, which most of your semi-automatic they or are, automatic weapons are. Well, this are. was an automatic weapon, and the ga- that, 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 that lever would go up and down. And, of course, if you had it level with the trenches, dig it into the ground, potato digger. Right. <laughs> and, the, and this gun that he's showing me is, it, what is it, uh, 30 caliber? Yeah, I'd say 30. Probably a 30 caliber uh, gun. It's got a pistol grip on the back. It's set up on a tripod. But the tripod comes back with a long uh, pole, and you sit on what looks like a bicycle seat. And I'm assuming your legs sit out in front of you straight. exactly. And it's got a little elevator, so you can adjust the elevation on this. It's hand-cranked from when you're sitting on the bicycle seat. And you pull the trigger from the uh, pistol grip, and it's just it looks like a small pistol grip, really. And uh, 
this thing, I'm sure, fires. What is a fire? Probably 80 rounds a minute? or don't have the size of this. There's a thing down there called a potato digger because of its gas-operated lever action. In 1895 was John Browning's first machine gun design. Remember, Browning designed the machine gun. Right, yeah. That's his first machine gun design. Okay, and we've got several more mannequins wearing different uniforms. uniforms. Cavalry uh, uniform, obviously, the blue pants and the gold star dresser uniform. That was their that was their uniform when they went to uh, to Cuba. This is the stable uniform, their fatigues uniform, their brown oh, uniform. Okay, for 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 the horse cavalry. Yeah. Okay, and now you've got a thirty forty Craig sitting on the right, back, right. and a Mauser seven mm. Right. Uh, the thirty forty Craig was kind of an interesting gun. It had a side magazine, and, and uh, from what I've been told, it was the only gun that was really made to be loaded while you were running, uh, oh, because you could that. shove those bullets in there, and it didn't matter how they went in. You close—I mean, they had to all face forward, but yeah. uh, when you close that trap door, it was ready to roll again. Never there again, it. it's a bolt action. Yeah. But Never uh, heard that before. That's interesting. I've got one, and you that's do? what I've been told by two or three people. Now, whether that's really true or not, I don't know. Do you like it? You know, I don't shoot it much. It was my grandpa's. I've okay. killed a couple of deer with it, yeah. but uh, for the good, most good, part... Good hunting rifle, but uh, they're better hunting rifles. <laughs> oh, yes, yes. It, it doesn't quite have the ballistics of a thirty out 6 but yeah. it's, it's like I said, it was my grandpa's. It's got a sentimental value yeah, to me. Yeah, I got it. So. And then we put these different signs up, signage here on the border between the fall of 1910 and the summer of 1960. Mexico had been embroiled in a violent, violent revolution. We have these different things explained differently. We put them in the narratives. Here are pictures of, of uh, on the border. And when I was a little boy, I got into a little closet of my grandpa's and I found a helmet. See that helmet? Right. What does it say on it? U.S. First Cavalry. Yeah, U.S. First Cavalry. And that hat on the wall there, that is a Federale hat. Okay, from Pancho Villa. Well, from that era. Pancho Villa would have been the uh, would have been the band that the Federales would have been the ones going after him. Okay. I, I had a guy who was on my board. He's a collector. See, I'm, I'm not a collector, except ultimately, I guess I'm the ultimate collector, aren't I? You got a museum. <laughs> I got a museum. But I don't collect for myself. I give this museum. I don't take for it. But anyway, he said, I was going to get rid of that. He showed me a book. He says, Joe, that hat, and this was several years ago, that hat's worth over $4,000. Holy smokes. Yeah. I mean, I'm too stupid to know what to steal in here, but this, there's got to be hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of stuff in here. As far as military memorabilia, yeah. I'm sure. Okay, now we're looking at a, at a case that's, what, 1915, 1920, World War I? Uh, or maybe a little bit prior to? Prior to World War I. This is on the border. Uh, a revolt against Porfirio Diaz, President of Mexico, in 1910, led to the instability along the border. A raid of Columbus in Mexico forced the deployment of U.S. troops with permanent camps at Douglas, Naco, and Nogales, Arizona. John J. Pershing, the rise, rising man of the army, led a punitive expedition into northern Mexico in pursuit of Benz, who raided into New Mexico. At the time, a large army of regulars and National Guardsmen concentrated in the southwest in case full-fledged war should break out. The Mexican border disturbance did give the army, including the National Guard, valuable experience in mobilizing and assembling large bodies of troops. This proved useful when the United States entered World War I in 1917. The first Arizona infantry, and that's what this was. Uh, well, no, I take that back. That's federal troops. The first Arizona infantry under Colonel Tuthill's command were among those entering the war. 
what had happened with the National Guards? The first Arizona Volunteer Infantry were those scouts you saw over there on the okay. thing. Then in 1916, or no, no, it's later than that. I'm trying to remember when it was. Early 1900s, I think it was. The Dick Act, named after a representative named Dick, uh, his last name, um, created legislation. They got legislation passed that kind of made the, all the militias uniform. Instead of it being, you know, General Beauregard's personal militia and all that stuff, they make him a general and he was just a wealthy farmer and all that stuff. You had to have certain training. You had to have certain weapons that you had to use and all that stuff. And that's what the Dick Act did. So that's so. Then they 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 made the first Arizona Infantry was sent over to uh, World War One. Let's go over to World War One. Well, just a second. There's something else I noticed here. What we've gone in these displays from from the uniforms being a dark coat, a, a dark navy colored coat with right. with light blue pants or white pants right. or uh, whatever color there. To actually moving to the the olive green that, yeah. that you're familiar with with the older military uniforms. Right, yes. So they did a color change, and, and I'm assuming that the uniforms were maybe more uniform at this point in time, or? Yeah, they look, they, they look more uniform. This is, that's a, a shirt, that's a jacket, that's an overcoat. Uh, I don't know what the difference would be, why they'd wear it differently. This might have been contained, in, you know, in, in garrison, and that might have been in the field. Now they're also wearing really high boots. Again, I'm assuming it's for walking around through uh, Arizona. No, no, they were cavalry. Because they were cavalry, then they wore high boots. Yeah. Oh, because they're riding horses. Yes. Bingo. Okay. Yep. <laughs> Sometimes it takes a little bit yeah. to get through my thick skull. <laughs> they were cavalry. There we go. Uh, and they were still using horses in in uh, the 1917s, even though uh, a lot of there were tanks and. Well, and airplanes. They, they had some old tanks, and they had the biplanes. But the Air Force, they were using airplanes at that time just for signal. Okay. Started off as signal. This is World War One, and this is the one five. The first Arizona Infantry was drafted to Federal Service for World War One on five August nineteen seventeen is when they went, and were then redesigned as the one five eighth Infantry. Okay, so and we're looking at a picture with with probably two hundred guys or so. Yeah. In it, yeah. Uh, a group picture. Yep. And then this display has a drum in it. Uh, oh, because it's talking about the band. The band. So, that's a picture of the band. Okay. And the significance of the band is when the war ended, Woodrow Wilson used the Arizona band as his, as his band. Oh, really? Yeah. And then you've got a, a couple of different machine guns. Maximum Again, a tripod mounted. Uh, actually, it's got a... Yeah, no, it's tripod mounted. And you've got another machine gun in no, there. No, it's not tripod. It's a stand... That's that has see. There's a leg there. There's right. a leg on the other side, and then he would sit behind it. And it's uh, it's like a water cooled machine gun. It's called a Maxim machine gun Gewehr, model 08, 7.62 machine gun German. Was okay. The mainstay of the German army. This is uh, so. This is German. German, piece. right? Okay, and it's water cooled. Yeah. Now that's cool. Yep. I did not know. Well, it looks it looks like a 30 caliber water cooled machine gun. Remember right. Yeah. One? Yeah. But you can see that it's big like that. And then this is a, uh, I forgot what, uh, uh, I forgot which. That says a Hotchkiss machine Hotchkiss, gun. Hotchkiss, right, it is, right. Yeah, 1914. Yep, yep. So, yep. yeah. Well, this is, this is a nice display, too. Uh, all of them are nice. I, I shouldn't even have to say this is nice, because every one see, of them is awesome. See that rifle down there? I do see that rifle down there. It's a very unusual rifle. It's called, let me, see, let me get over here. It's called... 
The Springfield 1903 Mark One. Mark One. That is a picture of it. That is a magazine. You can take that bolt out and put a magazine. They experimented putting a magazine to make it semi-automatic. That would have been the first semi-automatic weapon. Okay. Remember? And the magazine comes up out, out the top of yeah, the... Yeah, uh, you push it down the top. And then, and, and you see that side? You see the little ejection port. Uh-huh. See that? See the little hole there on the above the, on so the bolt? Yeah. that was a pretty small bullet. Yeah, it was. It I was. mean, the chamber looks like, like a twenty-two long rifle almost. Uh, it but it says it's thirty caliber. Yeah, let's see. Point thirty caliber, seven point six two millimeter straight wall cartridge. Yeah. The, the, the experimenter didn't work very well, so they never used it. That's what well, it seems it. like it'd be really hard to sight looking through a, a magazine sticking up. You don't care up. if you're going in a trench. Da, 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 da. <laughs> Remember, trench warfare. Right. Instead, yeah, that was that was instead of bam, bam. Bam! Right. Okay. Yeah. And you're go. You're, you're invading the other yeah. the other trench. Go ahead and look at that a second. Let me wow. Yeah, we're looking at a at a case here with with lots of rifles. There's uh, 15 rifles in here. Looks like we've got a grenade launcher of some sorts. Uh, a couple of German Lugers in here. A 45 Colt. Uh, a Nagant. Just lots of rifles that uh, would have been used in World War One. It looks like from lots of different countries: Germany, Italy. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that's the point to be made. They represent all the belligerents of the war. You've got Italy, Germany, France, United States, uh, Belgium. What is that? Excuse me. Russia. Russia. Uh, Switzerland. German again, German again, British again, American, and uh, Austria. Austria, the Monlicker. Yep. This the is Luger. just <laughs> so you've got all the guns that were that were being used, and and most of them are uh, are bolt action. Uh, you've got one down here that is a pump. Shotgun. Oh, is that a shotgun? Yeah. Okay, and, and it's got cooling uh, apparatus around it also. You can't tell if it's shotgun because it's running yeah, yeah, behind the mannequin there. Right, exactly. But I was, yeah. yeah. And uh, let's see what else. Now, okay. what was the purpose for the long stocks on most of your military rifles in the early days? Was that a carryover from the flintlocks? I don't know if that was it or if it was, uh, they just felt that, that if it's longer, might have been a carryover, not from because of the flintlocks, but remember, what was affixed to the end of the rifle on the front? The sight. Bayonet. The bayonet. Okay. It's okay. a half-assed version of the spear. Okay. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> but most of your old military rifles all had really long stocks on them that you know came out uh, way past where your where your hand would rest on the front. I, I know, but I think. And then they sporterized them when they brought them back and, and turned them into hunting rifles. And, they did and that, and, the then they, and then they did it for the special operations forces of modern times. Okay. You got the telescoping Scott and all that stuff. Here. By the way, there, there, that's a show shot down there. Black troops use those primarily. That is a that is a, a magazine at the bottom. That round thing there. Okay. See. And it says the uh, French or African colonial troops. Yeah. And okay. that is one of those sites. You know, when you're in the when you're in the trench, you can look over the top of the trench and not get shot. Okay. Yeah. So it's got an angle. It's got an angle uh, like a periscope yeah, in a exactly. submarine. It, exactly. it angles exactly. on up so you can see. Yeah. This wow. grenade launcher. Right. Ruger and forty-five. Camo. Heliograph. 
And when he says como, we're talking about communications yeah. here. So heliograph mirrors on a, on, a, on a tripod. Now were those for signaling? Yes. Okay. He's and he's got two. Of, he's got two opposing mirrors so that you can uh, bring the sun down and be able to flash. Is right, that how that tripod, works? Yeah. Okay. You, you see it in the cowboy movies. They do this. The flashing. Right. That's, that's what it is. It's a heliograph that was used in Arizona a lot because the Apaches would be on a mountain far away, and this is all set up around Arizona. So, so when the Apaches are far away, you could signal to other troops what's going on and all that stuff. Part of the signal stuff. Trick uh, six. PRC-6. Which, which looks like a monstrous walkie-talkie. Right. It's, 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 it's common for uh, World War II and Korea. Uh, this one, I think, is more World War II. Signal Corps, Army Radio. Again, looks like a big walkie-talkie yeah, with an antenna on it. One of them has a flexible antenna. The other one's, a, an, a, well, a telescopic like you have on your car. On your car. And this is what we call the PRC-25, AMPRC-25. PRC means portable radio compact. Okay, and that's a battery pack that the phone's attached right, right. to. Right, Most no. platoons in Vietnam may have had one. Some companies only had two. Okay. My platoon took over from a recon platoon. I took it over from there. And they says, hey, Lieutenant, do you want, you want these radios? Because they had the radios on the Jeeps. I says, yeah. So my platoon had five radios. That's more than, wow. some, that's more than some companies had. Okay, now now explain the numbers with company. A troop is a single man, is a single soldier, correct? Yeah, right. Okay, then you go from troop to a squad. So how many's in a squad? Uh, Ten or eleven. Okay, then you go to a a platoon. Platoon. Forty, forty-two, forty-three. Depends. Depends on on how you how you organize on. And then there are four platoons to a company. Okay. And then a company. There are three or four companies to a battalion. And there are three battalions to a brigade. That was the way we were configured then. I was, and of the brigades, we had three large brigades that made the division, the 1st Cavalry Division, Air Mobile. But see, it was a little bit different than most organizations because we also had helicopter troops. They call them, when you say troop, you were mentioning troop as, as an individual soldier. Troop also talks about a number of people in a helicopter flight, a troop. Okay, okay so there might be four in that crew. Four or more. Or okay. More. And, and so the, bo the bottom line is um, uh, it changed, and I don't even know what they're doing now, because right now everybody wants to be a shooter. Nobody wants to be, uh, you know, everybody wants to be a hero. Right. <laughs> well, so, so you could describe a, a troop as a fighting, An individual, uh, a fighting unit, maybe. Well, for, 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 uh, for the helicopters, it was like their company. They called it a troop. Okay. Okay. Just and I think that's a carryover from the cavalry days when they, when they had cavalry squadrons, and that's why they called the. Remember, we were the air cavalry, so we had troops and squadrons. Okay. okay. And uh, but but that was for the aviation unit. First cavalry division. Division is about fifteen thousand men. And in our division, 1st Cavalry Division was a unique division. It was the first of its kind in Vietnam. They've changed everything now. A lot of people copied it out so that nobody knows anything about it coming from Vietnam because nobody wants to say anything positive about Vietnam. But we started it all. What the hell do you think started this air mobility stuff? You see all these helicopters flying around? Right. We started it. Well, yeah. I was part of the group that started I was in those helicopters getting shot at, landing on the ground and getting shot at and going on patrol. We started it. It didn't start yesterday. Right. Okay. Right. Uh, and then you see all these new kids jumping out of helicopters. We started all that stuff. That's what we. That's what I did for a living. 
Uncle paid me money to go lead a group of guys to go get in a helicopter, go from point A to point B, get out of the helicopter, go look for bad guys and kill them. That's what I did for a living. Well, that's what it was. And that's, you know, I, th I think that's kind of the era that you were in. Uh, World, right. War, World War II would have been more of the, the airplane. Online, and World War II would have been online. Still carry over World War One. Right. Just didn't have the trenches. And uh, mass... But but the, but the aviation part of World new. War Two was was fairly it was really new in World War One, but it was developed as far as bombers and a lot of that stuff in, in World War Two. But it's still a different kind of aviation because right. our aviation was uh, intermingling of the troops and that machine to go from point A to point B. That's why we could move around in Vietnam. That's why the First Cavalry Division was so special because they could say we got bad guys over there you didn't have to send people marching for 20 miles through the jungle to get to them right they said get on the chopper we're going to land you over here at this lz we're going to meaning landing zone we're going to prep it with artillery fire means to blow the hell out of that area and we're in the air and when we see the white phosphorus smoke from the last artillery round that means the chopper start going down and we're all looking at each other the bucker factor's getting tight and we're all ready to get as we used to say an ass the helicopter okay and then go out and do our mission and, and the helicopter just gave you all the mobility to be That's able to do was, that. Exactly. Yes. That was the new. That was the new concept. Air mobility. This is between the wars. Um, National Guard stuff. Notice the uniforms. Notice that uniform. See that swastika. Okay. Aren't you curious? Yeah, I'm, I am. Swastika is an Indian symbol, Native American symbol, and also a Buddhist symbol. I got a. It my, goes back thousands of years. Yes, it does. And people made a big stink out of that because that was the 45th Division, the Thunderbird Division. So they had to change it and put a Thunderbird on. And that was in Arizona. Yeah. Okay. And this guy's got a swastika sticker on his shoulder. He's an American soldier. We're right. looking at a uniform from 1937. And when Hitler hijacked that symbol, I mean, we've got we've got old buildings in the town where I'm from that have that design up above. Uh, on the brickwork, probably Indian, and and yeah, and it the, wasn't it, because of the Nazis. It's now called the Four Winds Trading Post. Well done. And the reason is is because this, yeah, <laughs> you know, because that's what it represented yeah. in 1914. It had nothing to do with Nazis, and now we look at it, and everybody gets all offended. Yeah, but it it has nothing to do uh, other than Hitler hijacked. The latest thing to get offended is uh, in Tucson, the Arizona Historical Society down there. Somebody complained because the Confederate flag was on display. And I says, well, figure out a way to display it with the other flags of Arizona, showing that it's part of the panoply. But right as you walk in, it's right on display. It makes it look like it's a Confederate museum. And that's not a good thing to do at this time. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. We're living in, in odd times. Yeah. Well, I want to show you this here. This is uh, Camp Tuthill, named after General Tuthill. Uh, those... Those barracks are gone now. I think just a couple of latrines are left. That's my Uncle Bill standing there with his arms folded. That's him behind the machine gun. Okay. He was uh, went in World War II. He was in the islands. Um, okay. And where was Fort Tuthill? Flagstaff. Fl and Flagstaff. Just okay. Flagstaff. We got a couple big models of ships right here. We got another thing over here. Display of protective masks. And and these are all gas masks. Yeah. And are these different countries? Yes. Uh, we've got British, Canadian. Uh, let's German. see, German. Again, every country had their own form of, of gas masks. Yeah, and we, we changed our There's gas. a nice selection. Yeah. You've even got a child's mask here. Yeah. Um, it's a model of what is that, the Missouri or no, Iowa? Iowa. 
That's the Iowa, Iowa. yeah, and a, and a, and a one of the Arizona. This guy was about 80 years old, this is years ago, was looking at the Indian dis Wars display. He says, you know, I can make you models of the, the Apaches. And sort of. He says, no, I need a good-sized model of the USS Arizona. So I commissioned him to do this. I think it cost me about two or three thousand dollars. That's a lot of work for two or three thousand dollars. I know it. He wanted other people wanted like ten and twenty thousand dollars. He uh, made it from scratch. Wow! From scratch. And it's got the lifeboats. It's got the ladders. It's got all the rails, uh, the guns, the airplanes. There's a seaplane on there. Seaplane in the right color, blue. Wow! Blue. Did you hear what I said? I did the right color blue. All right, now I'm going to tell you why. By the way, here's, that, here's the Thunderbird patch where we change this for the... Okay, Arizona. so the, the Nazi patch got changed out for a Thunderbird patch, and right. it's a typical Thunderbird look. Yeah, what, what was the... I want to do... Where is it? It's over... What the hell did I do with it? It's over... About the... Oh, right here, straight in front of me. Couldn't see the floor. Okay, Jeez, we're talking back about the USS Arizona. Recently discovered Navy documents in the National Archives yeah. have revealed that the appearance of the American battleships at Pearl Harbor is much different than originally thought. Instead of a dull gray, they were a bright medium blue. The tops of the forward turrets were brightly colored to reflect various battleship divisions. So you've got different colors here. You've got red, white, blue, black, and yellow. Uh, One was red, two was white, three was blue, four was black, and five was yellow. So one red, that would have been the division color for the first division for that uh, Pearl Harbor, that uh, the Arizona was. Okay. And so the, the Arizona was actually a blue ship instead of being gray like you've always seen portrayed. Yeah. Well, wow. we, well, we, well, because we only had black and white film. Remember? Right. Well, isn't that the truth? <laughs> Everything was black and white till 1960s. Yeah. So World War II uniform. These are original landing maps for D-Day. Okay. A guy came in. That's his original thing. He was a D-Day. And those are original maps. Wow. And then he's got a U.S. Uh, Army uniform. We've got Navy. We've got Airborne. And a jump jacket from, yeah. for a paratrooper. Again, all on life-size mannequins. We've got a mess kit over here that's inside of a... It, it must be like a squadron uh, uh, mess kit. Oh, yeah. Cause and, here, here, and here's uh, lanterns that they used on the, to get, bring the ships ashore. Okay. 81 millimeter mortar. This lady came in from up, up north, one town up north. Said, Joe, I got a, a chaplain's orchid. Would you like it? So I drove up north to go get it, met her and her husband there in the parking lot. She gave me, it's in a suitcase. That's a suitcase organ. I was going to say, it's it's got, what, uh, 25 keys on it is about all. Yeah. But it, it sits in a, in a suitcase. I, it's smaller than, like, a trunk. Yeah, it's not a trunk. It's and like it, a big suitcase. And, and then it probably folds up it so it stands up so you can sit there. And is it bellows operated? Yes. It's got... That's it's got it's, the foot uh, pedals. Yeah, well, it's got to be for the bellows. It's not for anything else. That's all I could think of, yeah. So it's it's an air organ that's uh, operated by bellows. That is a cute little piece. Yep. That thing is really neat. 81 millimeter mortar, World War II vintage, because it's got the the rectangular base plate rather than the circular base plate. A 30 uh, cal machine gun. Yeah, 30 cal machine. Uh, you got to have a, a, a foot locker to show what it's like when you're in the barracks. At the close, the 
the, the you know the pistol belt and the socks and the shirts and shorts and hygiene hygiene stuff and everything. Uh, this is a landmine detector. Now it looks like a great big metal detector. That that base on that thing is probably sorry. twelve inches round. Yeah, well, it's a for anti tank mine, and it's an, yeah, not a, not just a landmine anti tank mine. That's a, the, the the things for the uh, flamethrower, the tanks for the flamethrower. I got to get a nozzle. Uh, then we have representative weapons: M1 Garand, um, Lee Enfield. Um, for British use that. The French use the Moss 36. We got the uh, did the thing fall down for the uh, um, the bar? No, it didn't. Browning automatic rifle and the grease gun. It looks like a grease gun. It does look. It's a submachine gun, 45 caliber. And then there's an unusual gun. It's called a Risley. The Marines used them for a while. It looks like an M1 carbine with a stick um, magazine. Uh, and it's got uh, the barrel is not not ventilated, but it's it's spiraled and and make a long story short, but it jammed a lot, so Marines didn't want to use it. And then we have a, a an old three for sniper rifle, and then you have an M1 carbine. Actually, it's an M what is submachine gun? M what is that? That's uh, a I thought it was called the 30 cal. No, that's a sniper rifle, but yeah, no, the the you think must have fallen down, but that's a that's a. Uh, uh, M4 carbine because it's got the folding stock and I think it's also fully automatic. Now you've got a really interesting looking gun here, the Steuben Mark III. It's got the magazine comes out the side and sits clear up at the front. It's a Sten gun. It's a famous British gun. You, you see the British shoulder gun like that? Right. Sten gun. Okay. That's really cool. Yeah, and we've got I the, don't know that I've ever seen one. They, they look very rudimentary. I mean, yeah, they it are. almost looks like a piece of conduit coming back with a metal buttstock that looks that was, just like a little thin metal plate. That was their automatic weapon. There's a, a rocket launcher up there, 2.3 okay. inches bazooka. Uh, and then next to the Brit, you got the Russian. Okay, Russian. and he's wearing Russian camel. No, that's German camel. No, he's wearing German camel. The Russian's wearing a, a khaki colored. Uh, kind of uh, uniform, wool uniform, the, the bear hat with a Russian star up there. Right. And he's got his Russian Tommy gun there. Um, and then Again, this, that's, that, the, the Tommy gun would look a lot like what you see the old gangsters with the round magazine underneath that, right. that feeds. Right. And there's some hats over there for the Africa Corps, German hats. And, uh, and you got. Uh, you got a landmine down here, or is that a. Yeah, that's a landmine. That's a landmine. Okay. Yeah. I've radio, never seen an actual landmine. Ra radio set, some machine guns down here. Uh, Italian uniform, German uniform. Uh, some more weapons up there. The Wolfen Mabel uh, Um Some of those weapons are just priceless. They're like worth forty, fifty, sixty thousand dollars. Like I said, I'm too stupid not to steal. <laughs> the M38, MP38, 9mm. Yep, 9mm. Yeah, this is great. That's an Italian uniform. I had this Italian uh, officer. He was in, in, the, in the sandbox. He came in and he made a joke. He went like this. He says, do you know why Italian uniforms always look so nice to put his heads up like this? He says, no, it's just because we want to look good when we get captured. <laughs> <laughs> and then you've got a, a little poster here that has the different schwastikers, the Pueblo schwastikers, and uh, the University of New Mexico, uh, business, I mean, all kinds of things that were using the swastika before Hitler had to go and, and uh, ruin the meaning.
let's let's go finish up one more. I mean, yeah, one more here. Okay. This is Arizona's Pride and Joy, the Bushmasters. Okay. Okay, that picture there, my Uncle Bill sitting up front. See the guys with the first group with the khaki pants? Right. The first guy to the left, that's my Uncle Bill. He was the first sergeant of that. They were in the islands. Uh, Thompson, some machine gun. Now, they, that one has a has a straight feed versus the, the round magazine. Yeah, you have two different types of magazines. You can put it. Notice the gun on top. In 1942, a cut-down Springfield M1903 rifle, the Bushmaster carbine, was used by the 158th Infantry Regiment during the extensive jungle warfare training in the Panama Canal Zone. They were allowed to use it. That's a cut-down... Uh, the, the stock isn't so long. It's more no. the sportster type right, version. Right. And the barrel's a lot shorter. Yeah, they were allowed to cut it down. They had to get permission from the Again, board. it was still a bolt action. Yep. And then you've got another liquid-cooled machine gun here. Water-cooled. I mean water-cooled liquid. Water-cooled. Yeah. Water's liquid. Water-cooled. Now, you see that gun at the bottom? Right. That looks like the old uh, uh, pellet guns that we used to shoot when we were kids. Well, the wood stock and the... It's a, it's a Rube Goodfarb type uh, gun. What it is, you see the, the grip on the front? The grip on the front is a pistol grip on okay, the front. Okay, and then it's got a trigger that you squeeze the trigger, and with the pistol grip, push forward and it separates the barrel from the stock. Oh! And, and in the back of the, of the stock there, there's a nail. You put... A shotgun shell in the barrel, slide it back in so it just seats, and then when you want to fire it, you pull back on the on the front hand grip real hard, and it shoots. The resistance for the in in the Philippines used that developed. Okay. So that was their zip. So you didn't have to have any real uh, mechanisms or anything. It's just a matter of of uh, pulling it back. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Here's the Bushmaster display over there. That's me. These are some of the original Bushmasters from World War II. And I was their vice president. That was years ago. They're all dead now. You got a Japanese flag over here that's all signed by, I don't know who, it's all Japanese. All Japanese. Japanese mannequin. With a Japanese uniform? Yep. And a bunch of Japanese uh, guns. Weapons. Weapons, a flare gun. Wow. Swords. You got some uh, samurai. samurai swords here. Yep. This is a nice display. I don't need to say this is a nice display. Every time I say it, I'm just repeating myself because this is awesome. It's a great museum. I say so myself. See this? Yes. A Japanese howitzer. Wow. And it was uh, in the Philippine Islands in 1945. Captured by the 158th Regiment Bushmasters. Captured in Luzon, Philippine Islands. January 1945. Gun Mountain, 75mm. Type 94, wow. Japan. And it's all really nice shape, cleaned up, let's sitting do, here. Let's do these. Here's the uh, Native American. Oh, oh the sorry. code talkers. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Go ahead and talk about well, them here, a little bit. Me. 1939, 1945, the Army tapped Hopi, Choctaw, Comanche, Kiowa, Winnebago, Seminole, Navajo, and Cherokee Americans to use their languages as secret code in World War II. The Marines rely on Navajos to create and memorize a code based on the complex native language. And they were never able to crack that code. Yeah, that is just, that, that's a cool story in and of itself. I think they made a movie. They did. Uh, I know there's been lots of documentaries, yeah. but... Here's Korea, the Forgotten War. And uh, 
Mannequins. Yep. Uniforms. Yep. Weapons. And why do they call it the Forgotten War? Because it was only going on for what? Four years? Four years. 1945, World War II ended. Everybody was all happy about that. But something was going on in uh, Korea. So I think, when did we go to? Was it 48? I don't remember. 47, 48. And uh, uh, we fought to a stalemate. Everybody forgets that the Korean War was the first United Nations war that the United States was involved in. Okay. See? And... Uh, and we're still fighting it. I mean, it has never been undeclared or resolved. We have a demilitarized zone, from what I understand. That, Kim uh, Jong-il is our good friend now. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, it's still, it's still, an, active, it's still an active war, as far as I understand. Sure. But we just have some sort of peace treaty where we yell we, at each we other. We, we, we have that, and we have this theater going on back and forth with this... This criminal who's our president, I'm probably going to offend some of your listeners by saying that. I am a patriot. I love my country. I risk my life for my country. And I hate to see it hijacked. <laughs> but, yeah, and, and this is just another of a long line of hijackings. I'm not, no, no, I'm not, not, I'm not on either hijacked. side of the political party. It. but They just use it for themselves. This is the colors for the one five eight infantry. Okay. And that's a nice flag with an uh, eagle in the middle, a couple of uh, arrows going through a red X. And uh, okay, we just came up some stairs to another gallery. Yeah, we're Looks on like you got a whole gallery up here. That is a ship's flag that you see on a submarine. Okay. German prisoners of war, you boaters were. Uh, sent to Arizona. How's that for? Okay, now I want to get into this particular part. This is really uh, uh, interesting place for me. I have done a podcast at the Japanese internment camp at Heart Mountain, which is close to my home in Wyoming. Uh, we went there and covered the Japanese internment camps, which I think a lot of people understand that the Japanese were rounded up. Uh, from California and other places. They were brought to internment camps, they called them, which they didn't want to call them concentration camps. Those are internment camps. These guys were, were prisoners of war, to be distinguished from the other ones. People you're talking about weren't prisoners of war. No. They're American citizens. But we had, but we had other internment camps and, and prisoner of war camps that I don't think anybody's really aware of, or a lot of people in history aren't aware of, that were housed in, in different locations. I did not know that this was here, and I got excited when I heard about it because it was another aspect that I wanted to cover. So uh, right. proceed to talk and educate me okay. because I need an education. All right. Uh, you came in the front gate there. Right. If you, when you leave, if you go up the hill and go down the hill, the first light you come to, I think, is 64th Street. Okay. And you take a left. And the first cross street, I don't know if there's a light there, but there's, it's called Oak. Okay. And on the left side there, on the northwest corner on the left side, there's a building. There's like a little restaurant. That was the Oak Club to the Prisoner of War camp. Okay. Okay. For, for the guys who offered, who ran across the street, on, on the west side of 64th Street at that intersection, is, I think they got the... Uh, Army reserves there now and all that stuff. But the problem with all of that is they did away with any of the other structures that were over there. So there, but that was where the the housing was. Uh, 
And and how big of an area was it? Ten acres? Hundred acres? Look, we don't even have a map of it up here, do we? I think we have it in our archives somewhere. We could try and look for that, but uh, you might want to read through some of this stuff. This will tell you exactly what a lot of the stuff is. Um, but these are artifacts from the prisoners of war. The guy who was the head guy, Wattenberg, this guy here, doesn't he look like a poster boy? Uh-huh. But you want to click your heels and throw your hand up right there? Right, right. Okay. Uh, he, uh, when they escaped, what they did is they... they uh, well, now, let, let's talk about the camp first, and then okay. we'll want to get to the escape, because there's a whole history there. This was called the Papago Park, Park uh, Arizona POW Camp. Is yeah. that what they called it? Yeah. Okay, and they brought these soldiers from Germany, or they captured them? Yeah, they them, captured or? the ships. So they're, they're submarines. They were submariners. They, okay, so all of these prisoners were submariners? As far as I know, they were. Now, when you ask me, are we all of them? I didn't look through all their 201 right. files or anything, but it's my understanding that the submariners were sent to Arizona because they all usually came from a cold country or something like that, cold climate. Right, okay, so that was, it was part of, the, part of the mind control. Yeah, okay. they, they were submariners. And how many were here? Uh, I don't have the statistics on that. I don't know. Hundreds or? No, I wouldn't go that far, but I'd say, well, I, I don't know. I don't know how many. The camp, I had a diagram of the camp. It had a lot. Well, of, it says nearly a half million POWs housed in 500 camps. camps. That's, that's, so that would have been. That in would the have United been, States, that's all in the United States. I didn't realize that there were 500 camps yeah. in the United States see, that, that were POW camps. Let's see. Uh, there must have been. Wow. That's just kind of an amazing piece of uh, yeah. history. It said, uh, yeah, 2,222 individual attempts by the Germans to flee their camps. So they had several uh, uh, escapee attempts. But, it doesn't uh, give you a number. I don't see a number for how many were here. There, there are a lot of stories, and I, I, I don't have all the stories, but I'll try to tell you a little bit that I remember. We used to have... The prisoners of war come and visit us about 20, 30 years ago before they all died. We'd have we'd have parties here for them. I had a guy on my board, his name was Klaus Fest. Okay. That's not Spanish. <laughs> he could speak German fluently. He was in the Luftwaffe, our Luftwaffe. And what we do is the German prisoners of war would do a reunion here. They'd be here about two or three times over the years. And one of the times, I don't know if it was the last time, but one of the times, close to the last time, they came here and we had the knockwurst and the cheeses and the breads and stuff in our little library room over here. And uh, they had brought their wives, there must be about 40 of them, brought them up here. It was cute to see a one guy, short little guy, repatriated to Texas, spoke with a southern accent, southern draw, wearing a 10-gallon hat and cowboy boots and all that stuff. But uh, met Wattenberg. Wattenberg, he was the captain. Okay. And, uh, you know, it, it was it was war. You know, we they were really pleased to be here. We honored them. Um, we treated them like uh, dignitaries they were. And uh, showed them this stuff. This was, what, when they escaped, what they did is they planned a, uh, um, a fight in the yard. They dug a tunnel. And uh, um, several of them escaped. Wattenberg, some of them gave themselves up later, got captured. Wattenberg, you know, as you drove in, I don't know if you know those, those little caves in the mountain there on the side. Right. Okay. He hid out in one of those for a couple of days. And he had, this was his pack. This was his backpack. Okay. And we're looking at a leather backpack that's only uh, 
six inches round maybe and, and two foot long. Right. I mean, it looks like leather or something like that. But right. To make a long story short, he uh, he had some stuff to eat and all that stuff, and, and he, he made it down to uh, Edge of Phoenix over there, and, and he saw a street sweeper, and he asked, where could I go to get something to eat? And his thick German accent street sweeper pointed him to a, uh, a restaurant, a cafe, and then he went over to the street sweeper, went over and called a cop, and so Wattenberg got picked up there. He was the last guy to get returned to the camp. Um, these are some of the things they did. Look at their look at their art. These are the the prisoners of war did all this stuff. Look at these wow. beautiful really? and yeah. Awesome. They made that little ship down there. They made uh, while they were in camp. In camp, yeah. Wow. Jürgen Wattenberg, that was his name, Jürgen. Here's their pictures right here. Huh. Okay, now these guys when they escaped, they dug a tunnel. Yep. And it was 178 feet long, three foot round, from what I understand. Yeah, if there's a place, if you go up, instead of taking the left, go a little bit further on the right-hand side, there's a little opening where you can go into where the houses are over there. There's a little memorial where they came out. Okay. So you can, you can find that when you leave. Just go up to 64th Street, take a left, and go up to Oak. I don't know if it's before Oak or right past Oak, but there's a little opening in the wall where the houses are. Go in there a little bit. There's a little memorial there that shows where they came out. Okay. Okay. And then they were gone for several days. Yeah. But they did get recaptured. Yeah. If you read this, you'll see how what, what happened to some of them. Some of them were uh, some of them went to work. Well, first of all, actually, when they were when they were prisoners, they worked on farms. On they were great workers. They wanted to let them get out and all that stuff. So. You know, people just because they're because from a foreign country, you know, the, the soldiers don't make the war, the politicians make the war. That's, yes, that's true. In fact, it, one of my favorite stories of World War II is where the Americans and the Germans all came out of the trenches Christmas. at Christmas time and they played a game of football. And after they got all through playing and having a party and everything on Christmas, they turn around and go back to the trenches and start shooting each other. It just, it, it's, it's another great story. See, these are different stories that were written over the years. And uh, Great Escape, December 23, 1944. 25 German Navy officers and sailors escaped through a 178-foot tunnel at the prisoner of war camp in Papago Park called the Faustball Tunnel uh, in the book by the same name. It remains the most sensational mass escape ever to take place from a POW camp on American soil. Okay, and the name of that book is called The Fastball Tunnel. Faustball, F-A-U-S-T. F-A-U-S-T. Faust, Faust okay. means fist. Okay. Faustball. Tunnel. Yeah. Okay, so I guess if we're interested in finding out more about this, we get the book. Yep. And do you have that in your uh, library? Library. I think, I think we do. I mean, do you have a gift shop here? At no. The, no. Okay. Yeah, but, but not, we don't sell that there. But okay. you, can get it, you can get it online. Okay. It's cool. Uh, let's see. This talks about... You know, and here are the pictures. Huh. That's interesting. And like I said, I don't, you know, there's a lot of people that maybe don't know anything at all about uh, about the prisoner of war camps here on, on the soil. I think every, no, they don't. I, I, I think I most of us thought it was a European war. Yeah, no, I knew they were Japanese because I know they're just Japanese and German camps near where I live, near Maricopa. But uh, I didn't know, reading that thing, I didn't know there were that many... Uh, prisoner war camps, okay. and and the th you know that we've got a fully functional uh, prisoner of war or not prisoner of war uh, Japanese internment camp at Heart Mountain. They've gone through and reconstructed the barracks. Really, they've got the watchtower reconstructed. 
they've got a museum there that is just unbelievable. Again, it's on it's on one of my podcasts. Uh, and the thing that's really cool about the Japanese internment camp, and I don't know how this camp was operated, but the Japanese were allowed to uh, integrate somewhat with the local community. They had a Boy Scout troop, they had a baseball team, and all of that kind of stuff. And the Japanese internment camp, to me, is a story of, of survivorship and success because they were ripped out of their homes in California, shipped out to these internment camps, and being in Southern California, I can't even imagine going to Wyoming. But when they shoved them into Wyoming, they were in housing that didn't have insulation or anything else at 30 below. And these guys, they grew their own food. It, it, it's a remarkable story. I encourage anybody to go back and listen to the Japanese internment camp, uh, Heart Mountain internment camp uh, podcast. And if you ever get up that way, definitely go there and see the museum because it's very tastefully done and it's really cool. But I would love to see you know, like a German POW museum, and yeah. I don't know where there's one that's been restored and talked they, about. They had some barracks, and they wanted to know if we wanted them, and I said, where are we going to put them? We don't have any place to put them. We can't put a barracks in here. Right. And I, 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 you know, I don't run the National Guard. They just let us use the space. And what they did in, at Hart Mountain was they, they put in the barracks, and then they made it part of the museum. So you're going into an actual barrack that's, then, yeah. So it's just kind of neatly yeah. done. Six flags over Arizona, Castilian flag, Spanish flag, the Mexican flag, the U.S. flag, Old Glory, and the, the, Arizona. Bell, and the Arizona flag. And now when you say six flags, is that uh, in reference the the, the, the theme park? The no, theme park no. has uh, this called Six Flags. We did this. How long have we been here? 40 years. Well, yeah. When did Six Flags start? I have no idea. Was it 40 years? I didn't know if they took that from this or, or where Six I Flags think, came so. from. I think so. Because we were here long before. I didn't mean you guys took it. I, I was asking if uh, if that's where the amusement park took oh, it from. Here are Medal of Honor recipients and uniforms from the war. You've got a bunch of different helmets here from Spain, Norway, Finland. Now, are all these World War II? I think... No, there's a World War One, World War Two. It's kind of a mismix of different wars. The Korean, Russia, Korean War, Canada. Yeah, okay, so lots of different helmets. Medal of Honor recipients. Most of the Medal of Honor recipients were for the Indian Wars. Oh, really? Yeah, the Apache Wars. That was the only decoration we had for valor in those days. Okay. So it was given to the Indians. This over here, this is the women in the military. Okay, and you've got the, all the women's uniforms from uh, Women's Army Corps, Navy. which which is what World War One, uh, World War Two, World War Two. Yeah. Then you got U.S. Navy Women's Reserve and U.S. Marine Corps Private Service Tropical, World War Two. That's kind of a bright green one back there. What is that one? That's a oh, Vietnam that's, War party suit. Yeah, those are called party suits that you could, when, when they wanted a party. Remember, Air Force is almost like being in the military. You know, Almost. <laughs> that'll, that'll offend your Air Force listeners. But they, they'd have, you know, they could have parties and all something. It's just a jumpsuit. Okay. Know? And then, yeah, you've got uh, Desert Storm uniform. This is cool. War on Terrorism. I put this all together. Um, Got sniper it. rifle. 
AK-47 with a folding stock, RPG. Have a mannequin dressed like a terrorist. You've got a section here on the on the attack on the World Trade Centers. Right. And then we've got Desert Storm, Desert Shield, Desert Storm uh, military uniform. Yep. And what's this guy? He's in a mop suit. The uh, the uh, protective suit. Okay. Yeah. And he's got a gas mask on and yep. and a protective covering. Yep. <clears throat> okay, and and more Desert Storm type uniforms, a female uniform. Right. Satcom. Excuse me. Yeah. Satellite command antenna. Oh, okay. Wow, for communications, it's sure come a long way since uh, since the other ones that we were looking at down there. Yeah, and I made a list here of uh, Arizona National Guard units deployed from August 2002 to November 2019. Okay, we got a terrorist here in the back. Yeah. And a uh, U.S. fighter pilot. Yeah, F-16, Operation Iraqi Freedom. And then we got World War One and World War Two U.S. Army Air Corps. With the uh, uniforms and the flight suits, we've got what five five different uh, full size mannequins and two half size yep. that are all wearing the uniforms and the flight suits. Frank Luke was the Blue Buster Medal of Honor recipient, World War One. You know, we we didn't have our own Air Force then. We went over and flew with the Aerodrome right. French and all. And uh, one of his best buddies got killed, so he was just really baloney's. Went bananas on it, and he went. Uh, he went up there, and he shot down balloon after balloon after balloon. And then the, the you know, the the the, the Forkers, the German planes, were to cover um, their balloons, you know, to for, for right. escort, if you will, protect them. And so anyway, he got hit. He landed in a field, and a German patrol, as he was landing, landed in the field. He had to strafe the patrol. Had to do that. Angered them. They turned around when he landed. They came up. They only had a forty-five and. And he, they, you know, they were infantry squad, and they killed him. And uh, we know about this because sometime later they found in a trash dump they found his remains and his watch. Oh. Okay. But here's you can see the evolution of army aviation. See how they used to wear those soft boots there because sometimes when they're flying those biplanes, their foot could go through the floorboard there. Oh. This guy here, um, golly, I forgot his name, but. Uh, he helped start a lot of the uh, education of what the aviation was doing. Here's an Army aviator suit. This guy here, I, I met him. He donated his suit, and he had another guy that I knew worked with me in the county attorney's office. The guy, the young guy, knew worked in the county attorney's office. They were buddies. He and this guy, Floor, they were in a C-130 and uh, flying out of Sky Harbor Airport. A small light plane hit it, killed him, dead. So that's what a way to go go through. Huh. Serving your country, you kill an accident like that. Right. Go water, have him up there, and uh, these are all the planes the Air National Guard has flown. Okay, and they're they're model planes model here. Model planes, right? Yep. And then we got chain guns over here. Oh wow! What caliber the, is that shooting? Uh, twenty-five millimeter, right there at the bottom. Okay. And it's it's a big gun. Yeah, and it could be on a ship or it could be on the Bradley. Okay. And this is what's on the Apache over here. Okay, another big machine gun. Yeah. Wow. 
Here's a model of the Big Bertha that the that the Germans used. I was going to say Germans had that one, yeah. didn't they? Yeah. And that was a great big artillery uh, gun that was on rails. It yeah. looks like it took two sets of rails to yep. to move that thing. It must have been heavy as <clears> all <throat> get out. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> How far would that thing shoot? Do you know? I, I don't know. Forever, just about. I'd say at least 30, 40 miles. That's just unbelievable. And then up here, when you look over the edge, you see uh, another set of machine guns. What's the big gun in the center? It's a recoilless rifle, 106 millimeter recoilless rifle, an anti-tank weapon. And then a 30 caliber on the far side over there. I'm and I'm not looking far enough down yet. I'm seeing a helicopter. I'm going to take you that because even that last. Uh, yeah. Just for last, you know. This is good. This neat. This is just a neat museum. One of the best in the world. So I've been told by people who've been around the world. Oh, let me just show you how we operate around here. Now they just opened up a big one in Dubois, Wyoming, and I haven't. I mean, it just opened. The ribbon cutting was last week. I don't yeah. know if you've heard about that one. No. Well, it's, uh, I, I don't know, the guy was a, was a big corporate guy that had a collection. He's got, from what it looks like, probably 50 tanks, all kinds of uh, it's money. different stuff. Oh, and he, I think he's got the money to do it, but I'm excited to go see that museum. Yeah. Uh, but like I said, it just now opened up. I don't know how many people have even had an opportunity to go through yet. But yeah. This is our archive room. I've got this young gal working on it. looks like she's been working in here. Good, I'll keep her. <laughs> you got a lot of a lot of boxes of archives. Yeah, we got the original muster rolls of the first Arizona Volunteer Infantry. Remember that? Right, that, that, that picture. Yeah, yeah. That, you know, that Indian guy there. Yeah, the muster rolls, big with the uh, calligraphy type writing and all that. Oh, really? A lot of Indian and Mexican names and all that stuff. And uh, there's a one of them has Goldwater's. Oh, really? Goldwater's uncle. Wow. And then you've got tons of pins inside of yeah, frames, lapel pins, and yeah. wow! Isn't that amazing? It is. This is a this is a cool museum. It's my baby. It, it looks like you've taken good care of her too. Well, Forty years, I used to run up and down these stairs like I was a athlete. <laughs> oh, I don't make fun of those old guys anymore. Now, when he's talking about old guys, he just informed me. You're 78 years old? 77. 77. Don't make me older than I am. Okay, he's 77, and he's still getting around and uh, really well, uh, showing us a museum here and and uh, full of information. This guy's sharp as a tack. Yeah, right. You are? Yeah. Anyway, gonna... here's the Vietnam room. Okay. And this is this is your era right here. Wow. Okay. So we start off again with uh, mannequins with uniforms. It's an American soldier. Happens to have a first cap patch on. I didn't put it on there, but that was there. It's the old OD green uniforms. Notice the white name tags. Notice the black and yellow USA. Uh, the insignia has a. I guess he's got a CIB and he's got jump wings that's all white rather than being subdued. There's a helmet, there's uh, pictures of donut dollies leading out of helicopter. 
Uh, nurses. Now, when he talks about donut dollies, he's talking about Red Cross girls. Red Cross girls. Yeah. Okay. They would go around and give donuts to people. That's what we call them, donut dollies. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you were thinking something. Well, I was. I, I wasn't sure what they yeah, were, no, but they, uh, they gave, gave donuts. Okay. Uh, okay. Here's a Marine uniform, dress uniform. Uh, I'll bet after eating MREs, the donuts tasted damn good. Some MREs, uh, we didn't have MREs, we had C-rations. Oh, you were still C-rations. I okay. love C-rations, I don't like MREs. Uh, that is a Buddhist peace flag that I got, we were on a patrol, I got that, and I got the, that's a Vietnamese flag down there that's, it's orange, actually it was yellow and red. Okay. And I washed it with bleach, yellow and red, orange, bleach, and, and bleach, and anyway, but I got that. We went out on a patrol, set up an old schoolhouse, and uh, some kids came running by. They tripped the trip flares, told the guys not to shoot. They didn't shoot. We didn't accidentally kill them. We're in the heavy BC area, and we took that stuff. I took it as a souvenir. That's a Buddhist peace flag. That is a uniform. A buddy of mine and I went to uh, high school together. Then I went to the U of A, University of Arizona. He went to Stanford, and I went through Army ROTC. He went through Navy ROTC, became a Marine pilot. I became a grunt, combat infantry platoon leader, and I've met him since then. And I says, well, I want your uniform. He says, I have it boxed away. I says, I want it. So he gave it to me. That's his pilot's uniform. Wow. And that's a picture of the plane he flew. He had okay. four. Isn't that neat? Yes, it is. There's another one of those party Party things. suits, yeah. yeah. And you've got patches. You've got uh, down with Ho Chi Minh flag. <laughs> and <laughs> air helmets. and Yeah. yeah. That's an Australian... Pat, remember the Aussies were there. Right. Okay. And um, it's an Air Force uniform. Pictures, there's a PT boat, picture of PT boat, picture of B-52 dropping bombs. Um, we have an artist who's a Vietnam veteran. He did this big picture. It's a famous picture of the cab guys jumping out of a helicopter. I paid, a, I paid 500 bucks for that painting. Um, this is a UE helicopter. And we are looking at a Huey helicopter. And it looks to me like it hasn't been decommissioned. It's still got all the guns on it. It's got the guns on it. It's got the rocket pods on it. It's got a minigun on it. I mean, a, uh, not a minigun, a chunker on it, a 40 millimeter rocket launcher, grenade launcher, I mean. And, uh, and how many guys would they shove into this little tiny well, area? This is, this is a gunship. So it would have been just three, the pilot, co-pilot, and the door gunner. Okay. And they didn't have a door gunner out each side? Some of them did, but not this one. This one was configured differently. This okay. Was, this was early on. These got the, the all, all the ammo strings here. There's no ammo in them, but no. uh, you can definitely see how everything was set up. Yep. Uh, There's a ZPU-4, four-barreled Soviet anti-aircraft gun. That, that we didn't like that thing that. looks that, shut, that thing looks vicious. It shot down helicopter. That could shoot down an airplane. I remember when we were going into Cape Town, I saw F one hundred jet in the ravine as we were flying over to, to land there, and I said, "Oh, geez, they can shoot down jets. They sure as hell can shoot down helicopters." I was going to say <laughs> the helicopter's got to be a little bit easier target, unfortunately. This Jeep, a guy we had this restored down in Tucson for us. He paid about five or six thousand dollars. He, he gave it to me. Gave it to the museum. That reminds me, I got to bring that thing in. Uh, I have the title to this. If I die, I don't want this in my estate. I want to go to the museum. This is a replica M60 machine gun. There's only one thing out of it that makes it legal to have here like this. That way it's not a fully operational M60 machine gun.
But this is a Jeep. It has the, the, mach the machine gun mount in the center. Right. That had to have been a lot of fun to try and hit something while you were going down the road at 40 yeah. miles an hour. Well, the MPs would use these mostly. And at least he had a lot of firepower. We had a bullet belt hanging out of that. I think somebody took it, probably put it in the back. I didn't want anybody to steal it. But this is a Yui. This is what we used to ride in. And out of that, this particular configuration, this is modeled for an early gunship. And then later the gunships, it came up with Cobras. You know, Cobra. Right. Okay. But the regular troop ship was a little longer, and you could sit on it front and back so you could carry troops there. And then here are the Vietnamese uniforms. This is a Arvin, Army Republic of Vietnam. This is also Arvin. This is their Arvin, their Air Force um, flags. This is I got that flag off of a, out of that Buddhist temple. Uh, it's, it's, it's not a flag; it's a, a, a tabernacle cover. Um, this is an NVA uniform. Viet Cong uniform, sapper uniform, female, and uh, along with all of the the uh, machine guns and, and firepower that they had. And this little motor, this Russian motor, small motor. Now, what are these Montagnard daggers? Montagnards were people. Uh, they're mountain people. Okay. And they they wear uh, loincloths. Okay. I've seen the, I've seen pictures. Yeah. The Vietnamese didn't like them. They didn't like the Vietnamese, North or South Vietnamese. So they didn't like the North Vietnamese. They hated the South Vietnamese. And they were good in their areas because if the North Vietnamese were in their area, they knew where, how these guys wanted to find them and kill them. It'd be like having Apache scouts check it out. The okay. Area, okay. And then they were really good at what they, what they did. And that's their spears and their bows and arrows and crossbows. They had crossbows. You see the crossbows? And right. Okay. Here yeah. Are. And then uh, here are weapons of the war. RPG. Rocket jump grenade. This, a guy who's in Special Forces gave that to me. You push a little lever. We're looking at it. We're looking at a rifle here that has a, a metal stock on it that's hollowed out. Yeah. And it's, it's a, over and under. It's, it's 22 and it's in a 410 gauge. And a 410, okay. You can separate it, load it, and you, you could, it's got two triggers. See the two triggers? Right. One, two. Yep. And, and you, you can shoot the 410, and it's a survival rifle. Special Forces use it. Okay. Okay. And then you have the other weapons that are up here. You got the M1 carbine, you got the M1 Garand, you got the M14, the M16, the M79, 12 gauge shotgun. These are weapons that we use. Now on this side, the French boss, the rifle Simonov is a Russian weapon, the Chinese Nagant, uh, AK, ubiquitous AK-47, right. and then this I think is an AK-50, and then you got the uh, submachine gun, K-50 uh, AK, or excuse me, North Vietnamese submachine gun, K-50M, and that's a rocket launcher there. And here's a crossbow, small crossbow. Yeah. Flak vest wow. in the corner, mine. Um, Several little mortar shells. Yeah. Medical uh, card book. Yep. Wow. This is a uniform of a uh, friend of mine. Where are you? I'm on this side. Okay. It's a uh, Gene Cox. It was a Marine. That's him there with his RTOs. They're at the Battle of Way, and they were outside of. Uh, Dido, which is a real heavy, bloody battle for the Marines, and um, that's his uniform. He's a multi-millionaire, he's done very well for himself. 
He's the, uh, was a developer, now owns a storage in his uh, business, and uh, very supportive of our museum, and we're thankful for that. That's good, yes. Here you and go. what was his name again? Gene Cox. Gene Cox. Yeah. Okay. This uniform, see the name on it? Right. There should be an A in front of that. B-O-D-E-E-L-Y. Ebodili. That's you. That's I. You were a little bit trimmer then. It's, um, I think it shrunk due to the moisture. Oh, it's, oh, okay. You washed it a couple of times. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's a good... That's me there in front of my platoon. That's a big picture of uh, Air Cavalry. That's a picture of my platoon when we came back from Quezon. Um, what does it say? Blowing charge on a captured communist bugle. American ground forces link up as the long-surrounded Marine Fort at Quezon. Uh, and then turned back and killed at least 103 North Vietnamese in the hills on South Vietnam's northern frontier, U.S. spokesman said today. A, I can't, am I having a hard time reading this? I could probably read it if I can see where you were at. A two-mile uh, victorious march by the Army 1st Air Cavalry. Is that the same thing that's over here? Uh, no, it's not up there. No, no. A two-mile victorious march by Army 1st Cavalry Division formally ended the 78-day communist siege of the Fort Hanoi vowed it would take, and American generals pledged would never be lost. The siege is over, but the battle for control of South Vietnam's communist-infested northern frontier roared on beside fighting in the hills near the fort. Leathernecks, uh, 25, 25 miles. miles northwest of the coastal city of Da Nang, killed at least uh, uh, 88 or six, 88 communists in a Sunday battle that cost no American casualties. At Quezon, where round-the-clock communist fire uh, um, drove three, had driven 6,000 Marines uh, underground, defenders underground, the Leatherneck Sunday whooped it up as Army First Lieutenant Joe Abadili's unit walked the last two miles into the camp. Abadili, 24, Tucson, Arizona, and his platoon formed the first air cavalry spearhead of the 20,000-man operation, Pegasus Drive, that broke the communist grip around Quezon in a week-long drive that covered 12 miles of jungle hills and minefields. Well, now we're getting to your part. It says the lieutenant triumphantly blew on the bugle he found in a captured arms dump. Its notes echoed across the red dirt plateau. Abadili's unit had landed by helicopter two miles from Quezon and met no resistance the rest of the way. The helicopter leapfrog technique plus a marine road clearing drive formed the backbone of Pegasus. That's the bugle. And that's the bugle. The top one. The bottom one is the one they gave us like a party favor when we left. <laughs> but you've got the actual one. I got the actual one. That's the bugle was found at the arms step. Wow. And when you read my diary, you'll see more about it. This guy, Bishop White, had been in World War II, Korea, and age 50, volunteered for Vietnam. Been in three wars. He was an aviator. And this is an aviation unit. Okay. Uniform. And then this is a diorama that I made for Operation Pegasus. Shows okay. the kind of helicopters we used. Used the lift ships. The gunship, Scout ships. Medivac. Chinook. And artillery. And then these are the aircraft that supported us. Air, Navy, and all of that stuff. B-52 bombing. and uh, Phantoms and Skyhawks yep. and gunships. Yep. Wow. And here is a thing showing the Marines who served at the base. 
their, their equipment. A Jeep with a 106mm recoilless rifle on it. Another one, a mule with a recoilless rifle on it. Antos, which has six recoilless rifles. This is a howitzer, means which is a combination of howitzer and mortar. It uses a howitzer base. They put a mortar on the thing to roll it around. This is 105mm howitzer. This is 107mm howitzer, which is basically a 4.2 inch mortar. It's the biggest mortar that we had at the time. 155 howitzer, bigger. The machine guns, 50 and 30 caliber. Patent tank, duster, and uh, the Boom. boomer, and the quad 50, 50 caliber machine gun. The boomer was a 175 millimeter with a long barrel. You can interchange that with an 8 inch gun. I mean, 8 inches means the diameter of the barrel was 8 inches. Really wow. Then this is art that we've had. We've had art shows here. You've got some leather art here where yeah. oh, I, I, that's, I that's really neat. I always have to show that to you. You understand leather art? You ever seen it before? Okay, let's describe leather art. It's it's leather and they take and they, they carve out what they want and then they press the back right. part down with tools yeah. and do tooling. And, and this is a POW it looks like. Yep. With a couple of helicopters coming in to a couple of soldiers sitting on the ground. Right. Yeah, but so you know about leather art then, huh? A little bit. Yeah, most people don't never heard of it before. We, we had an art show here. The guy said, I'm going to bring leather art. I never heard of it before. Okay. And, and whenever, you're the first person that's ever been in here that knew what, the, what leather art was. Oh, well. <laughs> that's why I ask you that. Well, yeah, yeah. I've, I've seen it in, in different locations. And this is kind that's of pretty neat. neat. That is a neat. It, it, that's a watercolor or is it? No, I think or? it's done with... With just uh, like the brush tip, like like uh, they they like a bamboo brush. And this is a picture of Vietnamese that are in a village and and doing some work out in the Big field. Rice or something, probably. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah rice. And uh, there's a, there's a bombs away. A picture of a of a bomber that's dropping bombs, and you've got your helicopter letting uh, soldiers off. Just lots of different art. And these are all stuff that's been donated to the museum. museum. Yeah. And then just a lot of narratives. I do all the narratives. You've now seen the museum, my friend. This is way nice. And Joe, I so appreciate you showing up and, and letting me through this, even though I know you're closed down due to the quarantine. Hopefully this quarantine lifts here pretty quick and things can kind of get back to normal. Uh, are you available if, if people want to see this museum uh, on a on a appointment type basis or? I'm, we're going to have a board meeting uh, maybe next week. We're supposed to be open in September, so we'll see. Right. Well, <laughs> and everything was supposed to be over with in, in April. Yeah, but see, we normally close June, July, and August anyway, so that worked out for us okay. Okay. But this started before June, as you'll recall. Right. Oh yeah. So. Uh, We'll see. I don't. I don't know yet. And and uh, we're going through some changes on the board. It's hard to run this museum because they're all volunteers, and everybody, you know, everybody has an idea how to do things. And uh, I'm I'm kind of a hard headed guy anyway. Um, I didn't get that impression at all. <laughs> I've been an athlete. I played football for five years. I wrestled for eight years. I was a combat unit commander in Vietnam. I've uh, been a trial attorney for nearly 50 years, city, state, and federal and military courts. And I've run this museum for 40 years. Who's going to come in here and tell me how to run this thing? I don't think anybody is. Jesus isn't going to do it. <laughs> so, yeah. And I'm, so, I'm not even, even going to be apologetic about it. I, you know, this is my baby. You know what's going to happen? 
I'm going to die. Nobody's ever going to know I had anything to do with this. This is why I want this. the record. Yeah. Remember, my name is Joseph E. Abadili. Colonel Joe Abadili, they call me. They call me Colonel Joe. And I started this museum in 1980. And uh, actually, it's, we started working on it in 1980. We actually opened up, I think, in the, the next year. But uh, it's, we've been around, I've been around for 40 years doing this stuff. And it's my baby. And it's a neat museum, isn't it? It's, oh, it, it, it's way neat. Yes. And, 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 it's and it covers so much. I mean, you're covering from 1500 all the way through today with yeah. the uniforms and the and the different artilleries or, or different weapons. weapons. Yeah. Yeah, and, I think this is a fantastic a, museum. And it honors those who serve. Yes, very, very well. Let me tell you what's going to happen. Right now, we're getting at a stage that we don't honor those who serve anymore. When I was a little boy... My mom used to take me to the parades, see my grandpa marching with the VFW and all that stuff. And my Uncle Bill was still alive. He died and had a heart attack when he was hunting. His three boys had to carry him back to the car. That was, must have been horrible for him. Because anyway, um, and then Vietnam, and I came back, and they were talking about everybody else, but they don't talk about Vietnam veterans. They still don't. They say, let's honor all the veterans. That's a way to get over that. And they're still talking about World War II. Yeah. The great, the great, uh, what do they call them? Not the great society. The great, uh, gen, the ge great generation. The greatest generation. Yes, there you go. Well, they weren't the greatest generation. They had discrimination. They had racism. They had uh, uh, poverty. Uh, they, they, they lied to the public in order to be able to go over and, uh, and, and uh, attack Europe to get us involved in a war that we didn't really want to get involved in. But uh, Roosevelt had to trick us into that. Uh, we had a Nazi party in America at that time that didn't want us to get involved over there. Um, and uh, we still have problems today. And, uh, you know, I, I, you know I'm, I'm, I'm getting to be an old guy. And uh, I don't care anymore. I'm not trying to impress anybody. Um, I came down here today. I didn't feel, well, I did this because you were going to take the time to record this. And I appreciate it. I love this museum. Do we rate up there as a quality museum? The very quality. The, the displays and everything are, are absolutely excellent, yes. You didn't get a chance to go through any of the narratives. If you went through this whole thing, you should get a at least a BA in, in history. Well, <laughs> it, it, yeah, you know, and that's the way it is with all these museums. And I find the backstories. I, w I went to, uh, well, I was up in Deer Lodge, Montana. I went through the prison, through the auto museum, and, and several museums there. I got to go through the auto museum with a guy that owns 90 of the cars of 150. You know, that guy's backstories were as good as looking at the cars, you know, where he acquired them, how he acquired how them. Acquired, who he bribed, who he threatened. Yeah, you know, and, and who, when who, I went who, through... Who he hoodwinked, who he... <laughs> when I went through the uh, Japanese internment camp museum, I had the opportunity to go through that with a young lady that had talked with several of the people, just like what you were talking. They come back for reunions. You get a chance to talk to those people, and she was able to present different stories that they had told her. So, yes, I've, I've done several museums, and, and all of them are interesting. And I haven't had a museum tour yet that I was uninterested in. And I've, I'm a museum junkie anyway. I've been to museums for the past 25 years. Wow. And some of these are repeats that I'm doing, you know, like uh, the Fire, the Hall of Flame Museum. That one there is the third time I've been there. And I just, some things you just can't get enough of. Are you independently wealthy? 
<laughs> Independently poor. Well, because you're not making. I'm money. a flooring. I'm a flooring installer. Okay, is what I am. Okay, you're not making money doing this. I don't make money when I'm not crawling around on the floor. You're, Absolutely you're, you're, not. Your your wife uh, an heiress or something like that? No, no, sir. This is a labor of love. I love to go to museums, and what I get out of this, yeah, is I get the backstories. I get to see things that some people don't get to see. I get to have. I get to. See, I get to hear backstories. I get to meet people like you that are that are interested in the same things I'm interested in, and that's what I get out of this right now. I'm hoping that at some point in time, this podcast and I've got a YouTube channel called Yoga Where You're At, where I do yoga in different oddball places. Uh, you do yoga. I do yoga. What does that do for you? What. Well, uh, I can't even begin to tell you what it does for me. You're I'm a flooring. I, I have health issues. I, I feel anything that'll help me. You know, and it would. And the thing is, is I do yoga for, for what I do is is yoga for people like me. I'm not I'm not fit, trim, and I can't stick my head between my legs. And uh, so I do what I can do. It's called yoga where you're at. I find interesting places, but it's also where you're at limitation wise physically. So if you can't bend over and touch your feet, I ha I can do. I can do uh, yoga in a chair, touch my knees. And, and see, and this is where it's beneficial. Your lymph glands only drain when you're when you're moving. They need movement in order to drain and to keep you healthy. But what I do is, uh, you know, if you if you can bring your hands above your head, wherever it happens to be, only, even if your arms are only cocked halfway, just getting that movement and moving your body side to side. And, and doing different things while you're breathing, it calms you down, and it also gives you mobility. And as you do more and more, you gain more and more mobility. I but did, it's not stressful to okay. the body. I did a little bit of movement today, huh? You did movement today. You did a lot of movement today. Yeah, but I'll sleep well tonight. You probably will. But, you know, it's just uh, I, th I find it very good for me, and I don't have knee problems. I don't have hip problems, and I'm a flooring installer. That should say a lot. Well, yeah, you're lucky you're doing that. Uh, and I've been doing it for 40 years. I started in 1979. So the same. You're, you're not on food stamps, though, huh? Oh, no. No. I work. My, I have my son and daughter that work with me also. Who was this guy that was here? That's my son-in-law. Okay. And that was that was my older daughter. Okay. My middle daughter and my and my son, I've got three kids, okay. uh, work with me. And, uh, did so, I say something that offended them or something like that when they walked out? Or did they, no. They, they just figured you and I were going to do our they thing. They figured you and I were going to do our thing, and they walked through the museum and saw. And, okay. and they'll listen to the podcast afterwards and catch all the details. But it's a neat museum, isn't it? It's an awesome museum. It really is. And you've done a fantastic job well, we with have, it. I can't take all the credit. I've had people come and go, though, I'm... I'm kind of a taskmaster because I, I, I'm uh, I'm really a smart guy, and I know that's a horrible thing for somebody to break. But it's Why? Like it's, well, it's like because you've you got know, you've got a law degree, you've got well, other I know degrees, you've got well, and that's true too. But okay. I mean, you've put you've no. got a lot of schooling I'm behind a, you, and you've got a lot of you practice. The proudest thing I have in my whole life. Did I ever tell you that? Nope. You know, I was in Vietnam. Right. First Air Cavalry Division. We um, operated outside of Way when the Battle of Way was going on. When you read my book, February 27, 1968, you read about how my platoon was totally surrounded by an NBA regiment. I four guys, five guys wounded that day and got, got everybody out. We called up the rest of the company. We, we actually made it back. Then we went into Quezon. My platoon was a lead platoon of the 20,000 men. You know, there are a lot of generals involved in that operation, a lot of colonels. A lot of majors, a lot of lieutenant colonels, 
A lot of captains, they put a lieutenant's name down for leading a 20,000-man operation in a case on. You know why? Because one, first of all, my my battalion commander, uh, Roscoe Robbie Robinson, Lieutenant Colonel Roscoe Robbie Robinson, was a black guy. He later became a four-star general. This is 1968. They're not going to make a general look heroic or anything. Kind of black guy. And second of all, he trusted me because he liked me, and he, he knew that it could all get messed up. And in all due modesty, I was probably the best combat platoon leader a country ever had. But the thing that brought us on my whole life as I went through the bloodiest part of the war, we went through that, we got through all of that, then we went into the Ashal Valley, then we operated around the street without joy, and then we operated at Quan Loy, which is right up the street from Ann Lock, which is where the NVA eventually came on in after we left. We left. I was only there until January 69, and they came in in 73. Uh, but the thing I'm proudest of my whole life is I never lost a man. That's something to be proud of in a combat situation. The bloodiest year of the war in the unit, the division, that had the most casualties. And never lost a man. That guy's wounded. I never got wounded. My my wife says, Jill, you know, I read about something. She says, you're always in the now. I says, what does that mean? I says, well, I said, well, you know, Donna, I'd be out in the boonies, and I would just sense things. I could sense things with the vegetation and the terrain, smells, you know, your smells and ants. I could smell a nuke bomb, which is the stuff, the beetle nut that the Vietnamese uh-huh. people did. could smell that, or just smell smoke. You know, um, when they're burning something in their village or something like that, you know, having a fire. And just in the now, and it's like I had a sixth sense. And uh, I wasn't a very religious guy. I, well, every once in a while I'd catch myself saying, Dear God, please don't let those mortar rounds land on top of us. Because you could hear them. I'd hear them ahead of time. They'd go, Doom, doom, doom. Oh, Jesus. Everybody down. Boom, 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 boom. Everybody's okay. And then we move on. But. Why do I remember this stuff? Why do I, I want to remember this stuff? I told myself I wanted to remember because I wanted to tell people about it. Why? To make money off of it? I don't make a penny off of it. I'm not going to make anything off of this. All I'm doing here, this is an educational exercise. I want, I hope you give this to me because I want it to be educational to help the people come after me to know because I've given it a little dissertation of things against it. Right. Uh, but it's to honor those guys who aren't as articulate as I, and who risked their lives for their country and came back and were treated like crap. Tell me about your book real quick. We have not covered your book. My book. You gave me a copy. I will read it, but you you might as well put a plug in for your book while we're here. Dear Mom and Dad, Love from Vietnam. And... It has a picture, stylized picture, the same picture. It's on the wall outside there in the Vietnam room. It's, it, you may not recognize it, but it's a picture of a Yui coming in and a couple of guys there. But it's it's based on my diary. I kept a diary. I think I started about January 6th or something like that and re- re- referred it back again. Uh, but kept it, and then I left at the course of the end of the year. So it was just about perfect for the year, okay? January through December. And it's about me going there, getting assigned to the unit, meeting my men, some of the things going on, the men, 
this and the other, uh, the different firefights, people we killed, people we saw killed, um, the, the, the villagers we dealt with. I, you know, I was an educated man. We never abused anybody. Um, and when I got left the field, I think it's in my diary, uh, a couple of my guys would say, well, 2-6 is going to be leaving us. Who's the best platoon leader we ever had? 2-6, two, 2 is second platoon, the 6 is the leader. 2-6 is leaving us. I found out later, I went and got out of the field, then I became a staff officer. I had my platoon for six months during the bloodiest six months of the war. Took six platoon leaders to handle my platoon after I left. Wow. And it wasn't even as bad, but then at that time, then people wanted to get their time in the field so they could say they were combatants and all that, get their combat infantry beds and all that. But I earned it, came back, but the book talks about my thoughts, my views, being afraid. Um, uh, I always like to tell people, if you've ever been in combat, uh, if you say you weren't afraid, you're a liar. And uh, uh, I was a I was a great combat platoon leader for three reasons. One, I was I was good at what I did. Two, I was cautious, and three, I was scared. And it doesn't offend me, or it doesn't embarrass me, to say that I was scared because fear is merely the acknowledgement of danger. And if you're in a combat zone. And other guys are trying to shoot you or mortar you or rocket you or artillery you or booby trap you, which they do that, try to do that to us all the time. And you're not concerned about that. You're either nutso or a liar. Is that articulately said? I, I would say that says it pretty plainly. But the book, but the book in a nutshell, it talks about, it's basically three segments to it. Not, they're intertwined. It's the diary, and then sometimes I'll have a letter where I wrote home to supplement what I wrote in the diary. And then something else, if neither of them is given up, I'll editorialize and, and give a narrative to explain what I just said in the diary. For example, February 27, 1968, that's when my platoon was totally surrounded by an NBA regiment. I came back and I wrote the diary, just came back. We were surrounded by an NBA regiment and uh, we just barely got out. I had five guys wounded that day and I think one or two other sentences. And then in my letters home later on, I explained to my mom, my dad, what went on. And so that explains it, and then I think it did a narrative to explain it a little bit too. But you know, when you're in combat, you don't you don't get to be a, a war correspondent. But you know, we had those jungle fatigues. You know, that right. Today you call them cargo pants. We had them first, okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I, I had it wrapped in a, a AMPRC twenty five radio battery and a pack. Uh, the battery comes in a plastic thing. Take, take it out of the plastic and. I used that plastic to kept my diary and that to get the water off of it. And uh, and it's it's a good book. Three Global Book Awards. I'm looking forward to, Dear to reading Mom it. Dear Mom and Dad, Love from Vietnam by Joe Abodee. And spell the last name again. A-B-O-D-E-E, Lee, L-Y. A-B-O-D-E-E-L-Y, Abodee, Lee. And so if you're wanting a, a, a play-by-play of a couple of years there in Vietnam, this is the book to get. One year in Vietnam. One year in Vietnam. It's a, it's the book to get. I and this and this museum's website. Just go online to Arizona Military Museum. We, we That's what I did, and I found it without yeah, any problem. We, we don't, because who's, I think Mary said she can basically start manning it, and maybe we'll do that. But, you know, we're only here on the weekends. We're all volunteers. Mary's getting paid by the government a little bit right now, so she's a little more interested in that. 
I'm probably going to have to give it to her, but she's never even been a veteran, and I just hope that the guard doesn't take advantage of her and say, we need somebody from the military. They get one of the new kids from the sandbox, and then they'll take out all the Vietnam stuff and put all the new stuff in. Well, you've got the record. We've got the record. Joe, I greatly appreciate your time and taking it with me today. I hope that we get lots of people listening to this, and I, I really hope that my podcast takes off. I so much love your museum. I love what you've done here, and the history and the, and the presentations are awesome. This is not a bad museum to find as far as location. You can Google it. It took us right here. You've got to get onto the military base, which included showing an ID and telling them where you wanted to go. No big deal. They let us right on in. The, the guard there was more than friendly. Uh, I encourage you to be here on a Saturday or Sunday. I would definitely call first. Get on the website. The, the phone number's listed. Mary answered the phone when I called. Friendly young lady. Uh, and she told me that it was closed, but put me in contact with you. And like I always like to finish these things out, I say the world is full of wonder. You need to get out and explore and have an absolutely wonder-filled day. Thank you, Joe. Thank you, sir. All the road and go, where am I to go? Meet Johnny, where am I to go? For I'm a young and a sailor lad, and where am I to go?